I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I always say that laughter is a spiritual quality. We're the only people, we're, only, we're the only species that have the ability to laugh on the planet. I mean, dogs can wag their tails and be amused, but they can't laugh the way they do and they say that a, a, a belly laugh with regards to endorphins being released is the equivalent to 20 minutes of yoga so you know one laugh if, if you're laughing all the time you don't really need to do much exercise <laughs> that's my excuse <laughs> welcome to the humorology podcast with me paul barros and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business sport and entertainment who are here to share their wisdom and their use of humor with you Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve your business success and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is a multi-award winning comedian and actor. Getting his start at the Edinburgh Fringe, he has built a priceless comedy career worthy of prodigious praise. He is the recipient of several awards, including an Emma Award, a Time Out Award and an LWT Comedy Award for Best Stand-Up Comedian. His career quickly evolved from the stage to the screen, where he has racked up recognition on his resume from roles in movies such as The Infidel, Gladiator, Mamma Mia 2 and Spy Game with Brad Pitt, just to name a few. He has received a Best Supporting Actor Award for his work in Casanova. The only thing more impressive than his list of awards is his resume, which spans from stand-up comedy to film to television. If he were not so busy on the stage and screen, he might finally achieve his footballing ambitions and be spotted to play in the Premiership for his beloved Chelsea. Omid Jalili, welcome to the Humorology podcast. Most people say, what a great introduction. But I say, you left a lot of things out there and I'm pretty annoyed about that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a number of major things you left, but I'll give you a pass. Let's go ahead. Okay. But, but well, okay, I left all the stuff out about RoboKeeper which is, you know, which is probably your greatest moment uh, on, on film. Um, for I'm those glad of you, you mentioned that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I no, did what but... Lionel Messi could not do. Messi scored against RoboKeeper after 16 attempts. I did it in my first attempt. Yeah, to, to, in the history of mankind, no one's done that. So I'm very, I'm very proud of that. 
And, and it is very, very impressive. And I, I advise all our listeners to look it up on YouTube because uh, and, and your celebration is something to behold after that, to be honest with you. I thought that YouTube clip would get, play, clip would get millions, but it's only, it's only at 53,000 or something. I think they think it's doctored. I don't think they realize it's a real clip. That's why it's not really gone viral. But uh, it, was a, it was a big moment, big moment in my life. I really enjoyed your fabulously entertaining autobiography, Hopefully, where you, you, you talk a lot about uh, being young and growing up in very interesting and slightly unconventional Iranian family in London. I was fascinated reading how much humour was valued in your family to the extent where your parents schooled you from a very early age in joke construction. Why was humour so valued at home? I think it's because they took in sick Iranians who'd come over from Iran to Britain to get medical help and they keep them in the house. And they found that if you kept the atmosphere light, if you made people laugh, they healed quicker. So there were lots of jokes uh, like in, in Iran, the word eggs can also double up as your testicles. So they'd often say, how would you like your testicles this morning? fried, boiled or scrambled. And it was the same joke I heard every day for, for years. And it always made the guests laugh. And I think it was because they wanted to keep the turnover going. They wanted people to, to heal so they get more people in. So it was actually a business decision that they, they kept humour to, um, I suppose, heal people, get them out and get the new people in. Um, so it was actually a very, it was a business decision. And they were both very funny people. And I think they just enjoyed they enjoyed humour. And when I would say I don't get that joke, my mother would try and teach me joke construction. And she'd always say the thing about a joke at the end, it has to be something surprising. So it doesn't matter if you get it or not, it's a surprise. So it was from a very early age, I understood uh, the whole idea of not just appreciating jokes, but writing jokes. And, and so was it also uh, about social status? Was it cultural or was it purely to do with the effect it was having on, on the, the ill people who you were surrounded by? It, it, it affected the ill people, but I remember something my, my mother said, which, which, you can, which you can actually apply to stand-up comedy, that if you go to a comedy show, so a friend of mine saw Ed Byrne recently, because I really enjoyed it, but I don't remember anything he said. I just remember laughing a lot. And then they said, what about me? Because I don't remember anything you said. I just remember feeling very happy. And I think my mother said, they won't remember anything. They won't remember the jokes. They won't even remember anything, but they'll just have a memory of being joyful. And joy is, is, is an element in people's lives that is very much lacking. And if you can give it to them, it's so precious. It's the main thing they'll remember. So uh, humor was always used as a, a, a tool to implement joy. They never saw humor and being funny as an end in itself. It was always a means to an end. So they said, we, we, we you should use humor and jokes to get to the end of joy because that's what they remember and that's what they'll talk about when they get back. I, I'm interested from a psychological perspective that, that actually it's a state change, isn't it? You can actually change people's state. Um, and that's the, the joy. There was a, a very interesting social science experiment where they actually got nurses who were very good at actually teasing and chiding and playing with people. And they discovered that those nurses, their patients healed in half the time because of, of, of the joy and, and thing. And it sounds like instinctively, your parents and you knew that that was true. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why Harry Hill, who was a junior doctor, he, he didn't go on to be a GP professionally because he saw there was actually more value in making patients laugh when he went round bed to bed. So he went into comedy rather than medicine. And um, I know that when I'm doing shows, it's been really interesting being in lockdown and not being able to experience comedy and maybe putting stuff out that was digitally uh, experienced. It's a big difference between watching something on your phone and actually seeing it live. And that's the reason why we go out to see live shows, because it is a change of state. You go and see a band. I'm a huge fan of Santana. And I love listening to Santana, but when you see them live, you experience a, a different physical state. If you physiologically uh, change, and I think that's the same with comedy, which is why you be, being very well aware that it's the final memory when they're leaving. I, in my head, I always try and construct what I see in my head, what I want an audience to feel and experience. So I'll say, what I want them is to be laughing. I want them to be standing. <laughs> it doesn't always happen, but I want them to be dancing on the way out. So it's, it's that joyful thing. And I'm trying to construct a show that builds towards that. It builds towards the very final thing as they're leaving. So it's very important to think about what, what you want people to feel. You're currently on the road with the Good Times tour, which um, goes on till December and takes you all over the country. Um, how did you, I mean, you've been doing it a long time, but how do you construct something whereby you can control the joy to build to that level at the end? It is something that um, as you become more conscious, and I really believe that you can only really find your comedy voice after years in the business, 20, 25, maybe even 30 years. I remember speaking to Colin Quinn. There's a wonderful comedian I'm sure American. you've heard of. Yeah, I, I worked with Colin and Caroline's. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's a real comedian's comedian in the sense that when Louis C.K. had two million followers on Twitter, he only followed one person, and that was Colin Quinn. Um, <laughs> but even he was saying that he um, he had a, a comedian called Dennis Miller saw him early on in his career. He goes, you're really funny, but there's something missing, something missing about you. I, I don't know what it is. And then he saw him 10 years later. He goes, yeah, you know, remember when I saw you? And now, 10 years later, there's still something missing. <laughs> there's still something missing about you. And Colin was saying, what can I do? And then it was 10 years after that. He said, okay, now, now you've got it. And I think it's just experience. You need years and years at this before you, you actually, you become more conscious. And I think that Colin was saying that he's become more conscious as a, a comedian. And he's so, so grateful to be doing it because it's something we take for granted. You, you end up in this, in this business and we just do it and a lot of people just do it unconsciously in any business you find yourself you don't really think about how i got there you think i'm here and then you don't really think about how am i doing it you just do it and then there comes a point where you just we the brakes are put on and you think okay how am i doing this what am i doing what am i achieving and you go down to every detail of how you even deliver a joke even what you're wearing even um, how much food you intake before the show everything is done consciously and i think that's where the joy comes into it when you're conscious when you know exactly what you want to do and how you want to achieve it and i think that's the big thing in all business you always think about what's the end and how am i doing it and, and most businesses that think like that are usually very very they're conscious and they're successful they're successful because they are consciously working towards something to be consciously successful. I don't know that sounds a bit like gobbledygook. No, no. But, be conscious about it. Yeah, but I, it's kind of like, at the. 
I would I would say it's unconscious competence. That's right at the top of the the, the tree. Is you go from you know uh, conscious incompetence, and yes. then you build right until you get to unconscious competence, whereby you you are unconsciously competent because because you've thought about it and gone through all those stages. That's brilliant. That is brilliant. Yes, well done. Well said, Paul. We should do a oh. podcast with you. You know more about this than I do. <laughs> okay, well, bless you. Bless you. I, I want to take you back because your childhood was, was quite staggering. And, and, you know, in the book, you talk about it. But you're one of the, the few people who talks about that classic comedian's tale about using humour to get out of tricky situations. And you actually believe it. Because there's a wonderful yes. story in the book about, you know, doing extravagant dancing to stop a fight, for instance. Yes. I used to, many times, I learned from a very young age. I remember I was one of three kids and somebody had done something wrong. And um, between me, my brother and my sister, and my father wanted to make a, a public show of, I suppose, corporal punishment. So he goes, line up, you're all going to get smacked. So my brother, who was at the time 13, he stood there. My dad smacked him very hard in front of all these guests. So it was it was very public shaming yeah. over something we'd done. I can't remember what we'd done wrong. And then my sister, well, I thought he's not going to hit my sister. And he did. My sister was like nine and he smacked her really hard. And I was like five going on six. I really didn't want to be smacked. So I said, it's all right. I can do it myself. And I started slapping myself and everyone burst out laugh, laughing. And he never smacked me because I'd smacked myself 12 or 15 times. And I said, I'll do it, don't bother, I'll do it myself. I'm so wrong. <laughs> and I, and I didn't know what I'd done wrong, but I knew it would make them laugh. And I learned very quickly that actually laughing can get you out of uh, a difficult situation. So I remember bullies were trying to beat me up, but I'd do a, a strange kind of like the, that kind of, you know, that strange Egyptian dancing. And and um, I got uh, I got away with things. And, and I think that was, I, I learned, that humor is like a superpower. I remember doing a sketch at school in front of the whole school and 2,600 people laughing and I was 12. I was in what you call year seven now and uh, the girls in year 12 who were like these very cool girls, they were called Pinky and Sam. I'll never forget them, they wore baseball jackets and, and pink berets and they were like the two long blonde hair and they were saying, you're funny, hang around with us. So they would look for me at break time and I'd go have to sit with them. And all the young kids would be looking at me and they'd have their arms around me because I was funny. And I think that I realized that, wow, this goofy, ugly Iranian kid can win over a whole school with a fabulous punchline. You know, it was a fabulous punchline. And the, the sketch was very, very sophisticated. And I think they couldn't believe it was such a great punchline for such a great sketch. So I, I, I learned that actually one way to sublimate being an ethnic minority, being not just ignored, but maybe pilloried because the Iranian revolution had happened and they they were showing lots of images of Islamic fundamentalists smacking their heads. We looked like a very, very unattractive bunch of people to hang around with. And yet it was an Iranian kid that made the whole school laugh. And um, I remember thinking it was a, it was a big moment in my life. Well, I, I'm really fascinated by using the word superpower because I think, and that can make you rise above everything else. Because um, the whole point of the whole humorology project is how humor can actually 
bring things together on that level. And it, it, it almost sounds like humor could be used for world peace, because if you, you know, yes. it's, it's a little bit like, you know, the new seekers singing, I'd like to teach the world to sing, but I'd like to teach the world to laugh is <laughs> probably if everybody laughs in the same way. It's the human condition, if you like. It's the great point of agreement. You know, it's happened at the UN, actually. That the UN, there was a great moment, actually, when, I don't know if you heard about this, it's, true, it's a true story, where there was a terrible, during the, the Middle Eastern peace process, there was terrible conflicts between the Palestinians and the Israelis, and the Palestinian delegate got up and said, and it was very tense, People had died, there were bombings, and uh, it was a big risk he took. He goes, um, Secretary General, everyone in the room, before I say something, I'd like to tell you one little story. He said there was a Palestinian man in many, many years ago in the, in, the, the, in the desert, thousands of years ago, and he was, I think he even mentioned when, I think during the time of the pharaohs, he, he said there was a Palestinian man who got to a, a lake and he took off his clothes and he went for a, he went for a swim but while he was swimming a filthy jew came and stole his clothes and ran away at which point the israeli delegate goes objection at the time of pre-pharaohs there were no jews in palestine and the palestinian delegate said and with that fact established i'd now like to make my opening address <laughs> there, was there was a roar of laughter and they were saying that was the beginning of the peace process. I think when the Norwegians were involved in 93, like the whole story of the show Oslo, which is a great play if you've seen, it all kicked off with a, with a very risky joke uh, like that. So actually, uh, in these times where we've just come through a great period with Brexit and we've come through with, you know, Brexit here, Remain, there's such division. And I always believe that it's, it's made up, it's divide and rule. They're trying to keep us divided. And they're trying to keep us divided now with the war in Ukraine. They're trying to make a, a globe where it's like as if Putin and Putin and Biden have said, look, you have one half, we'll take the other half. And that seems to be this division that we, humor is the one thing that knocks all divides away. And I think that's why they don't. Historically, comedians have been attacked, put in prison, because they're the ones who bring about the great agreement and the great unity amongst people. Well, and totalitarians hate humour more than anything else. I mean, in, in apartheid, you know, you weren't allowed to do plays. You weren't, stand-up comedy didn't exist. It wasn't allowed. Uh, and that's, you, you know, that's, if you're, you can control everything else, but you can't control the laughter. There was one thing I said on stage the other day. I said, look, we can't really judge the Russians right now. Because if, if, if you judge Russians based on their leadership, that's not fair. It'd be like people judging British people based on our leadership. And if they do that, we're screwed kind of thing. <laughs> so I said, I'd like to just share with you. You know, there are little memes going on. Just one night I, I saw this thing on the internet. There was a couple of Soviet jokes going around. And I said, there was here's a Soviet joke, which shows you the jokes in the time of so the Soviet Union. They did these jokes. And the joke was that it, you couldn't buy it like a car or an oven if you did, you have to do it 10 years in advance. There's a, a guy buys a car and he puts a down payment down. And they say, congratulations, you've just bought your car. Come back on this day in 10 years time and pick up your car. And the guy who's bought it says, is that morning or afternoon? And he says, well, what difference does it make? We're in 10 years time. He goes, well, that day, I've got the plumber coming around in the morning, in the morning that day. <laughs> <laughs> so when you see that, 
the Russians are telling jokes like that amongst themselves. They must have a sense of humor. Therefore, they must have humanity. And therefore, if they're allowed to see what's actually going on, which we understand 75% are not, then they would be just as outraged by this war. So it's important, actually. I, I, I now start putting a couple of uh, Soviet jokes in my set just so people don't feel bad towards the Russians. There's a great joke that um, Paul Reiser told me about the Russians. I want to do it the way he does it. He, he goes in 1905 uh, in St. Petersburg. They come out. They come out in, in the. They come out in the big square. That goes. Everyone gather. We've had. We've had a big harvest. There are too many mush, uh, vegetables. So if you want to get extra vegetables, carrots, mushrooms, come out and we'll give them out for, for free. So, that, so everyone comes out and, and they're in the freezing cold waiting. And they say, we've made a mistake. There's not enough vegetables. All the Jews can go home. Jews just leave. So the Jews just leave. It's freezing cold. And after another hour, it goes, we've made a miscalculation. There's not enough vegetables. All the women can go as well. So the women leave. Another hour goes by. It's like minus 20 because we made a mistake. Everyone can leave except for the military people. There's only enough vegetables for them, so everyone leaves. And then they say after another hour, they goes, there's not enough vegetables, everyone. Everyone can leave it except for the two-star generals. And there's only two two-star generals waiting there in the freezing cold. And after another hour goes by, goes, well, where are the vegetables? They say, there are no vegetables. This is a propaganda exercise. And then one two-star general turns to the other, goes, you know what really burns my ass is the Jews only had to wait one hour. <laughs> It really burns my ass. It just made me laugh. No. And that's another Russian joke, you see. So the Russians do have a great sense of humor. <laughs> oh, no, no. It's exactly, God, we, we, we've, we've worked out world peace. That's, uh, that, seems, <laughs> that seems perfect for the Humorology podcast. I, uh, taking a slight tangent, um, I've heard you say, and I'm slightly offended, but uh, I slightly agree, that comedians uh, are people who need the laughter of strangers to validate us. We're all mentally ill. Um, yeah. And it kind of reminded me of what Billy Crystal said about Robin Williams, um, that he needed those little extra hugs that you can only get from strangers. Do you, do you yes. think that's ultimately true? Well, I, you know, I saw... Robin Williams many times. I lived in New York doing a show with Whoopi Goldberg and so I used to go out in the evenings. My family wasn't with me so I went to comedy clubs and many times Robin Williams would just show up and I'd think, what's he doing here? Because he'd be on a film or he'd be on a night off and he'd go down and he would just go and do 40 minutes and he just needed that. He needed, and, and then I saw him for Prince Charles' 60th birthday, there was a group of us went to a tiny comedy club called Outside the Box in Kingston. And it was me, I went on, then Michael McIntyre went on, and Al Murray, Joe Brand, and then it's and finally, please would you welcome Robin Williams. And he got to the stage and the place was going mad. And as he was about to open his mouth, someone just shouted, flubber. And he went, what? They went, flubber. And he, he went to pieces. It took him about five minutes to regain. And then I saw him after the next day. I said, you went to pieces when someone said Flubber. He goes, I know what. Of all the films they mentioned, why do they have to mention Flubber? That just totally floored me. I didn't have anything to say. I was finished. And I think he goes, I only do these things because I, I need laughter. I need people to, he was like, I need, but when someone said Flubber, they go, that movie was a piece of shit. And they mentioned that, that just killed him. So he actually had quite a fragile ego and it's true we we do we do seek the laughter of strangers i mean i kind of say it ironically but 
Um, but I do know that I really resonated with something Dave Chappelle said when he did um, Jerry Seinfeld's brilliant comedians in cars getting coffee. Yeah, people were saying, you know, when they say things like, "Is he like that at home? Is he funny at home?" and you think, no, the real me is up on stage. What you see, that's the me, that's the real me. It's not just the best part of me, it's the real me. And I think that that's why comedians go up there because they find everyday existence and being in social situations actually quite stressful and a little bit anxiety making. Whereas if they know what they're doing and they can go up there and make a crowd literally fall about laughing on the ground laughing with their jokes that is the real them that is the best part of them and i can i can see i can see that i can see that in someone like robin williams i was so gobsmacked every every time i saw him he was so good and so quick and the best part of him was the was the improvisations because he'd had so much so much in his comedy bank that from the brain to his mouth he could improvise like like quicker than i've seen anyone else do it and that, that comes from doing it a lot so um yeah i, I think we do we do require the laughter of strangers but we do also require to be on stage to show the best part we're actually the real part of who we are yeah no i'm interested you talk about robin williams because having uh, been at the comedy store on three occasions i think when robin williams comes into the dressing room and goes do you mind if i do a, a 10 and then you'll go you'll go no no it's robin williams the first time and then he goes on he does 40 he sucks yeah, the yeah. living juice out of the room and then you have to follow him <laughs> and you literally can feel that, that he has sucked every bit of laughter out of that room. Unbelievable, yeah. But I'm interested you talk about his his character and maybe this is a, a character because uh, is, is performance the shy person's revenge on the world? And I, oh. you know, this is... Uh, this is how I can do it in real life. I mean, we both know a lot of comedians, well, hundreds, if not thousands of comedians who aren't like that, who don't do it in that real. But this is the, this is the space where uh, I like your idea that this is, uh, I can really be the full me. Yeah. It's interesting. That's probably why comedians like spending time with each other um we, we know that we're all quite damaged and being with other people who are damaged who um kind of understand that um it's really good and we've kind of we're kind of healing each other that's the thing comedians are very good at healing each other talking with each other and talking things through I, I find some of the best therapists are other comedians who who say why don't you think that joke worked and what did you do wrong what hurt you when you were younger? <laughs> Tell, you can talk to me, I'm hurt too. What, what pissed you off when you were younger? So I think that's why comedians um, seek each other out. And when we get on with each other, we talk, that we have long car journeys together and, and and they're very deep, thoughtful thinking people. God love him, Sean Locke, the times I was with Sean Locke in a car just alone was some of the most precious times because he was, um, he was one of those people who never needed to be funny in a car. He was just very real. I think some comedians are very real and they're very curious. He wanted to know about me. He goes, you're not a Muslim, are you? You're a, you're a Baha'i. What's the, what's the Baha'i faith? And he, he was very curious and was really wanted to suck information all the time. And I think that's what we're like. We're with other people who just, you know, we're always, there, there's a big instinct we have as human beings to grow, but also to relax. And I find that comedians are some of the most curious people I know because they want to grow. And then when we relax, we like to laugh while we relax. So we're either with each other, 
laughing together or watching stuff that makes us laugh. So it, it really is a, I always say that laughter is a spiritual quality. We're the only people, we're, only, we're the only species that have the ability to laugh on the planet. I mean, dogs can wag their tails and be amused, but they can't laugh the way they do. And they say that a, a belly laugh with regards to endorphins being released is the equivalent to 20 minutes of yoga. So, you know, one laugh, if, if you're laughing all the time, you don't really need to do much exercise. <laughs> That's my excuse. <laughs> I, I'll we'll go back to what makes you laugh and how you get those belly laughs. But I'm, I'm, I'm interested to just go a bit further because it is such a weird job to make people in a darkened room do an involuntary act. It is. And it's something that, you know, when, when you look at... To take, for example, you know, beautiful actors, you know, men and women, they spend a lot of time, you know, working out, they watch what they eat, they perfect their acting skills, they go to, they have acting, they have, they have dialect coaches, and, and, but they want to do that so people are happy to look at them and happy to watch them. Whereas that's not enough for a comedian, they have, you have to be interesting so people watch you and to elicit this this laughter, this this involuntary reaction. So a little bit more needs to be done. I remember I very lucky to bump into Robert De Niro when uh, he, he bought the film The Infidel, written by David Baddiel. And um, he was saying the older you get, the more you realise comedy is the, it's, it's the great holy grail. If you can make people laugh, that's the most difficult thing. It's, 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 it's amazing being Robert De Niro. People look at me, they think I'm fascinating. I open my mouth and I'm in a film. It's great. But to actually make people laugh is, is, the, is next level. So it, it is a very, very difficult thing to do. And I think the challenge of that is something that is a science that needs conscious study. It needs to, you need to exercise it in a certain way. And that process of getting there is, is an extremely satisfying um, it, it's like reading a, honestly, it's like reading a fabulous book. You know, you sit down for a couple of days, read a fabulous book to then do a show that's made people think and laugh. It, it is, it's tremendously satisfying. There's a lot of mental illness that goes into that. I know there's a lot of beating up. Like if I didn't get a standing ovation early on in my career, I'd go back to my hotel room and eat a lot and worry what I'd done and it wasn't enough and nothing's ever enough and it's just mental problems. But uh, I think it's because it's such a difficult science that it's something that we, we have to um, consciously study. And that's the, the, and I, that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years. I've been listening to stuff, watching stuff, and really watching myself as well. And trying to laugh at myself. It's not often you can, but I think it's very important. One, one of your things we were talking about was, can you do you find yourself funny? And I think that's absolutely essential. Once you watch yourself and go, that, that guy's funny. That That's funny. You haven't really achieved your potential unless you find yourself funny. And I think and we're, we're our biggest critics, our own critics. And I think you, you need to find. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And yourself funny as well. How important is it to actually not take yourself too seriously? Because you just talked about that you actually, you know, worried about the performance and uh, all those kind of things. But to see the ridiculousness of ourselves. I've, I've never taken myself seriously in the sense that I, where I think I'm the finished article. I think we're, we're all a work in progress and we're all in learning mode. Um, and I think in that sense, if you're going to learn, you shouldn't take yourself seriously so you can forgive your mistakes. I think that's a very important thing. To do. If you say don't take yourself seriously, do take yourself seriously, but forgive yourself mistakes. And, and I think that's a very important thing in, in comedy. If I mess up jokes, I used to really beat myself up. But now I think, okay, no, I just got that wrong. Fix it the next night. It's like even tennis. And I asked a tennis player, I said, I said, you've done no double faults. He goes, because once I've done the first serve and it's hit like the ball's hit the top of the net, you make that adjustment. I've just got to throw the ball up an extra inch higher. And usually that works. So you you make those adjustments. And I think in life, if we just make adjustments as we go along, that's so much better than beating yourself up. So in that sense, take yourself seriously. But in a sense, don't take yourself seriously enough where you don't learn from your mistakes. Yeah, and it, and it's an ongoing process, isn't it? The, yeah. the whole thing, you talk about it in terms of comedy, but in terms of life and people getting better in life, I always liken it to we're both wearing glasses when you go to the opticians and, the, and they do that thing, better with this, better with, you know, with that. Just life's quite simple. When I do it like this, is it, what's the reaction? Is it better? Go with that. Actually, I can give you a little tip. You know, if you're driving... If you're driving in torrential rain, did you know that, you know, when you can't see, but it, let's say you're, you're in a rush, you need to go 70 miles an hour, but there's such torrential rain, you, you're going down to 30 or 40. If you put on sunglasses, you can see everything perfectly. Because I was, I was in a car with a driver who was going, I said, you're going too far, it's torrential rain. He goes, no, I'm wearing sunglasses. I said, what difference does that make? And he said, here, put them on. And I put them on and you can see clearly. You get where, where it, it just takes out all the blurriness for some reason. Uh, just a little tip I wanted to share with you. I mean, it's a tip sense. I like to share with everyone because it's a very, I'm always yeah. late and I'm always in a rush, but that, I, don't, I always slow down in rain. <laughs> this message was sponsored by Johnny Nash. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's that's a one for the older listeners. When you talked about laughter as as being therapeutic, what makes you laugh? I find high drama very funny. If I if if I see, um, for example, let's take the film Aliens. Uh, you you wouldn't think there's fun there's humor in that movie, but there is. It's it's when when an actor plays it so truthfully, like when they're they're all inside and they're asking someone to go through a tunnel to put something on a transmitter and Hudson, the guy playing Hudson, he goes, I'm not going to go there with, with all those things crawling around. You can count me out. You can count me out. You're going to be kidding. I'll be dead. And, and, they, and then Bishop, who is the Android, he goes, I'll go. He goes, that's right. Let Bishop go. He should go. <laughs> it's just the way he says it. It's such relief that he doesn't have to do it. And yeah, such a great idea. He's he's uh, he's an android. Those mit- those little moments of truth make me laugh. And I think that's why, for me, there are shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm, which are so funny. And when they play the truth of the moment, and I do know they improvise a lot to get the truth of it. Yeah. But they still have to do many, many, many takes. And when they've done many, many takes, that's when they get the truth of it. So I know Larry Davis spoken about it. He said that the the comedy comes from the truth. If you really hit a truthful moment, it's hysterical. Well, you talk about taking a joke too far. I mean, you have talked and in your autobiography about uh, crossing the line. And um, I think you were at Edinburgh once when uh, things uh, you were in inverted commas cancelled. Um, because of things. But isn't that the job of a comedian? And, and how often have you done it? And do you still cr- cross the line um, yeah. in order to find that? that yes. Sweet the, the, the rules of comedy are that there's not, nothing is sacred. And if you can, if you can make it funny, then it's, it's okay. And I don't really go by the rules where they say you can't do accents now and, and um, you can't really that if you're black, you can talk about racism, but not if you're white. I mean, I think that's all nonsense. Um, Yes, I think what happens is comedians in general, we have to be a little bit careful because what makes us laugh doesn't always make a mainstream audience laugh. I mean, I'll tell you something somebody said that that made everyone at the comedy store laugh. We were all backstage and... um, there was a comedian called Chris Luby. Do you remember Chris Luby? Yes, I do. Of, Used to do the sounds of uh, aeroplane noises. Sounds of aeroplane, like here's a marching band. <laughs> he did it really, really well. Yeah. And um, someone who was not a comedian came in. He goes, oh, I'm very sorry to hear about Chris Luby. We said, what? What? Chris Luby passed away yesterday. And we went, oh, no, the sound effects guy. What a shame. And uh, so how did he die? And they said, sadly, he, um, he had a fall. We said, wow, he goes, he um, fell down from the top of the stairs all the way down to the bottom. And Dominic Holland said, did he make the sound effects? And it really made me, (laughs) and we all burst out laughing. But the the messenger said, you're all a disgrace. That's a terrible thing. So there is is that dark humour that comedians (laughs) have, which we have to be a little bit careful of. So there are certain things that, you know, in the tour bus makes us laugh or other comedians, it doesn't always translate. And I've said quite a few of those things where I've said something that's made my support act laugh. And he goes, don't do that on stage. I said, why not? It made you laugh. He goes, yeah, but I'm a disgraceful human being. I laugh at everything <laughs> like that. Don't say, then I do it on stage. And he said, I told you, you that the, the audience were with you until you said that two people walked out. So it, it is a line. And I, I think there some of the lines are actually like the example I just gave you, getting humor 
out of human suffering is, is, a, is a very difficult one. Um, it, it's, it's, I, I don't like certain jokes. I mean, there was one joke that was being lauded and I remember thinking, that's not a good joke. That's a terrible joke. Um, it was the day after 9-11 at the comedy store and I think somebody's phone went off in the crowd and somebody said, oh, that's not the 110th floor again. And it was the real reference back to people ringing yeah. for in distress, about to die. And it and it it didn't get a laugh, and rightly so. And I remember some comedians said, "Oh, that guy's a genius! What a clever, clever thing!" And I remember thinking, "Yeah, it may be, it may be clever because he thought of something to say, but that was the wrong thing to say, and it was, it was never going to get a laugh." Um, so I think that we we have to be a little bit careful as comedians. If you want to laugh, if you want if you want an audience of four hundred for one person, say, "Well, that was a clever that was a clever improv." If you want that, that's fine. But it, but it, surely we can we can reach for something higher. So I just think that making light of terrible human suffering is is, is a challenge. It's not impossible, but it's but it's a challenge. It's something I don't normally do myself. No, and it, but it's interesting because we have people like John Sweeney on the show and, you know, I used to work with surgeons and and when people live in a high-pressured environment and you could call comedy a high-pressured environment psychologically because it's the thing that people fear the most, um, public speaking, um, they do have a darker sense of humour in order to cope. Don't, that's just the way it is. Soldiers, naval officers, a lot of doctors... Um, yeah. There's a lot of humour that's shared amongst them, amongst themselves. Like comedians, we share humour amongst ourselves, which actually a lot of people either won't get or would actually think they're a disgrace for joking about those kinds of things. But but that's their want and that's their prerogative, so we have to respect that. Well, yeah, I, I accept that um, uh, Paul Provenza and um, and Penn Gillette did the film The Aristocrats, which we've talked about uh, off screen, um, about the joke that nobody can tell on the stage. And yet, yes. um, because yeah, that is a typical... <laughs> yeah, so we'd like you to tell it now, Omid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, because one of my favourite jokes, it's really interesting, what makes me laugh, and if people always ask me, what is the, what's your favourite joke? I mean... I, I, I do I do think things are silly, and, and, I, and, I, and I do think that brevity, brevity is the soul of wit. So I think there's a Tim Vine joke that always made me giggle. I remember when, when he said it the first time, and he said it in the middle of a 20-minute set when I watched him first, and it was like, is this it? Is that all you're going to do, puns? And then there was a bit where the audience go, oh, God, God, is that it all? And he keeps doing puns, he keeps doing puns, and they think, oh, God, he's going to do 20. You look at your watch, and it's 10 minutes, and he's got another 10 minutes to go. This is the act. And then he just suddenly said, Velcro, what a ripoff. And I just fell about. It was the most stupid. It wasn't even, he just threw it with no context. Velcro, what a ripoff. And it really made me giggle to my core. And I think that that's the thing. When you, when you find things that are silly and absurd like that, you know, life is absurd. And anything that kind of, <laughs> kind of pinpoints the essential absurdity of existence in, in such a devastatingly brief way as that, then that's something that it just uplifts me. I don't know why, but it just made me, it more than makes me smile. It makes me think Tim Vine knows the secret of the universe <laughs> by coming up with something like that. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, well, he is brilliant. Everything. I, I'm interested to this secret of the universe because we briefly touched on the fact that, you know, people's number one fear is public speaking. Obviously, you have been doing it all your life. Uh, for our listeners, what's the best tip for engaging an audience quickly? I think, um, look, I, I know a lot of business people love to open with a joke, and it's kind of the only joke they have. They, 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 they put a, in a keynote speech, they put a specifically, you know, a laser-guided joke somewhere to get the audience on their side. I, I think speaking... Uh, slowly and clearly. I'm a big fan of people who do that. I was, you know, I was asked to speak to the audience, to the crowd, actually, at Ipswich Town Football Club recently. And I put it out on Twitter that I'm going to do a halftime show. And they were saying, we're not going to hear it because the tunnel system is so bad. Yeah. But I noticed that the the stadium announcer always had the microphone too close to his mouth and he spoke too quickly. And then with a massive e echo, you can't follow. So it's important if you're speaking to a big crowd to speak slowly and clearly. So when I spoke, uh, I think I said very clearly, it's amazing that at the Super Bowl, their halftime show had Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, and Mary J. Blige. And I waited because they know there's a joke coming and there's a little laugh. <laughs> I said, whereas you guys get the bloke who had his knackers squeezed by Oliver Reed in Gladiator. And... <laughs> The fact there was a laugh there and everybody could hear it. So I just spoke slowly and clearly and I was very clear on every word I was going to say. So actually pre preparing what you're going to say is very important and then delivering it slowly and deliberately. I think that's a, for, for public speaking, depending on how that was 21,000 people there at Portman Road. Uh, but then once once you've engaged them, then you can um, then you can you have the confidence to carry on in the same way because then they said why did you move to ipswich and i said i came here to have a hip replacement and it went so well that i decided to stay so i'm the first person to come to ipswich for a hip switch and it was so silly they laughed at that as well <laughs> and after that there, there, you can say anything. So I think that if you're first two, I'm, I'm not a fan of just one opening joke. For business people, you need two opening jokes. So it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a secret tip. Uh -huh. Throw in two jokes at the beginning because then uh, throw in one joke and then you, you speak. Then they think, okay, he just used a joke to get our attention. But throw in a second joke, they're there. Hey, he could do a joke at any time. So my tip is always do two jokes at the front. What I love about you, and I, I, I really got from uh, watching you on stage and, and also from the, the reading the book Hopeful, which I highly recommend, you talk about being hopeful. You are ultimately the most hopeful person. You've got a bravery and a hopefulness. And, and I love the, the thing about, from a psychological perspective, that 95% of all your emotions, both positive and negative, are influenced by how you talk to yourself. Uh, are you naturally talking in an optimistic way? Uh, and do you have to be optimistic in order to follow what is the hardest profession? Yes, and this is where sport comes in because I played football and I've, I've had training where uh, when you're at school, the teacher, we had a great soccer teacher and he would always give us, the team talk was very important. What he said always affected us. And he'd always say, 
the very end and go out and enjoy it. That was his thing. He'd always say, enjoy it. And if I'd be moaning, he'd say, enjoy it. Come on, let's enjoy it. And that's the one thing I always tell myself, in, in, enjoy it. Because, you know, and I'm not just talking about my set. I'm talking about life in general. You only get, you only get one life. And, you know, when you, and when you eat, you eat as if you're eating your last meal. Enjoy enjoy every moment except for when you wake up i never enjoy waking up and even then i try and do things to make sure i get a cup of coffee or some water so i can enjoy waking up but i think enjoying things and having that sport kind of like come on and encouragement that's the way i talk to myself i g myself up like as if i would be g'ing up a football team or if i was a footballer say come on you can do it i i, I do a lot of that thing you know, just be focused be strong you know, I give myself, I know some comedians have that thing in the mirror that goes, I'm funny. I know I'm funny. I've got the right to be here. They give themselves mantras. <laughs> and it actually works for some people. I'm funny. I know I'm funny. And I've got the right to be here. I think that's really funny that people do that. But but I, I'm very much sport orientated and they're never getting beaten. That was a big thing. I'm not going to get beaten by this crowd. I'm going to win. And often when we go somewhere and it's an all white audience, and it's like the arse end of nowhere. I'll always come away and say, that was, a, that was a away win. That was an away win. They didn't expect me to do well, but that's an away win. So I think in sport terms, and that really helps me get through it. Well, no, I'm fascinated by the whole sport terms because it, it, there is a great analogy there because uh, every great comedian is like every, let's just say, footballer. And when you, you interview them afterwards, you'll, you'll hear them say, well, actually... Uh, I just was in the zone, flow state. I had a lot of time. I saw the ball coming over and it seemed to be in slow motion. I received yes. the heckle and I just had loads of time to respond and I was in control. And, and there is a lot of analogies there. And it's how you set up, we go back to the word state, how you set up that state. And what you're doing is setting up a good state in order to allow yourself to succeed. Yes, I think having the right state. I mean, certainly you, you can't go on stage if you've had an argument with someone. You can't go on stage if you've had a terrible telephone call. You, you need to have, I always need 10 minutes of silence and 10 minutes of kind of you know, just telling myself that I'm, I mean, I mean, I know Booth better, but my, my support act is Boothby Graffo. In, oh, he's great. You know, he's, he's fantastic. But he says, always remember the, to the always remember the, the Tory power stance. I said, what's that? He goes, you stand like this. Yeah, he goes, and, and, he, and he was saying that is such a big thing that no matter what they say to you, you're in control. I said, why is that a Tory thing? He goes, because, because all the Tories do it. They're always, they're told to stand with their legs apart and, arms like this because it's very powerful it's almost roman it's, it's like an emperor-esque way of uh, attacking uh, life i mean that is good but also another aspect which is gets in you're in a good state which is a more humble thing actually is to realize you are in a service industry and that you're there to serve an audience and i think that's where i've seen the difference between the great comedians and the also rands because the also rands are doing it just for themselves. They come away saying, oh, stormed it. Oh, yeah, was, they love me. Whereas a true comedian was saying, um, I serviced the crowd tonight. They got their money's worth. I was value. And people go away saying they really enjoyed that. And I think that's the difference. If, if you have a service, uh, if you have a service orientated attitude towards your work. I, I think that's fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. So take it on a macro scale. Can you be a good communicator without understanding 
the essence of humour? Or do you think you only reach a certain level? Because we've had politicians on here and, you know, talked about communication. I think you are comparatively one dimensional if you if you don't under, have that extra dimension to you. Yeah, I think you no, you can be good communicators. I know Vladimir Putin just gave an address in a stadium in, in Russia and he communicated very well. He was walking around like a stand up comedian. Did you see that? He was wearing a duffel yes. microphone. I mean, he, he was adopting stances of comedians. Donald Trump is a great communicator. I mean, yeah, but good. I'm not sure that great can happen without humour. But I'm I'm just putting that out there to think. I'm not sure that 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 you said you said good for Putin, and then you we went to great for for Trump. I'm still not sure that great is there if you can't do humour. Oh, I said great for Trump on purpose because for his people, he he does employ humour. I think that's oh. the thing. He so does at his rallies. I mean, you and I will watch some of those jokes and think that's a disgraceful joke, but they, they'll they be pissing themselves laughing because he does jokes for that crowd. He always, even when he was making fun of a journalist and oh, saying, yeah. who is that? It was awful. We're like, oh God, how can you do that? The crowd were laughing. So he was trying to be funny. So uh, he was still employing humor for his crowd. So that's why I called him great. Because no, his, no, it's interesting. It, no, well, it, I didn't see uh, Vladimir Putin uh, employing any humor, but I, I, I see Trump at least trying. I remember seeing Trump. I remember seeing Trump when I lived in New York in 2003. I remember watching him. He was on New York television all the time, giving out checks to charities and being very funny. I remember watching him going, he should be president, this guy. He, I'd vote for him because he's charismatic and he, he's, he was not the Trump he became post-president. But before, and, you know, and we're talking about 13, 14 years before he was running, very charismatic, very humorous, you know, loved stand-up comedian. He was on Saturday Night Live. He hosted Saturday Night Live, you know. So yeah. that's why I say I, I, he, he has this sense of humor. So he, he was, that's one For of the reasons. Crowd. Why yeah, exactly. For his crowd, no. Um, we've reached a part of the show, Omid, which we like to call quick-fire questions. Quick-fire questions! Who's the funniest business person that you've met? Now, you've met every comedian and, and uh, every actor, but, I mean, they could be in the film business, they could be in uh, general business, but somebody who's not just a comedian. There's a businessman I have met um, very briefly who sells fish in an East End market. I don't know if you've seen him. It's a video called One Pound Fish, <laughs> and it's got like 8 million views. And by the way, every million views you get for a video, you get 5,000 pounds. So that's already, it's 40,000 pounds. That's a great video he's made, which is he just goes, come on, ladies, come on, ladies. One pound fish, five pound, six pound, one pound fish. There's one pound fish. It's, it's the most ridiculous uh, video, but he is the most successful um, fishery in East London. So he sells fish for one pound and the song made him a celebrity. And I think that he's last I heard he went his business went crazy and he packed up. I think he's wow. retired now. So that I think definitely he's he's employed humor to push his business spectacularly. Brilliant answer. What book makes you laugh, Omid? Uh, Harry Hill is one of the funniest comedians, and his autobiography is very very funny. It's just laugh a minute, really. Uh, and if you're a comedian, it's a very um, it's a great book to learn about how a junior doctor got into 
um, comedy and um, and how he went from being an act that would constantly get booed off stage and then became a household name. So it's a fascinating read. You have been in um, loads and loads of films. What film makes you laugh? I don't know why. That even today, I think having seen, it depends when you see a film again. Like I really love The Graduate with um, Dustin Hoffman. And I watched it periodically in my 20s and my 30s and my 40s. I've just watched it again. It's, it's even funnier. I, I, there's so many um, moments I've missed watching that film. It's a great comedy. It's a really funny comedy and with a, with a typical boyhood thing. I mean, people watch that show, they watch that film when they're like in their adolescence, they think that life is romantic. But it's, um, the, the more I read about it now, it really is a book about um, the failure of the American dream. And it's quite a serious film about how the youth of America have gone astray and they, they worry about generations to come. And it's actually, it's a very deep movie, but it's a very funny movie. So they employ humor to make some quite serious points about the American dream. And, and I just think that's one of the most uncomfortably funny films. Um, and seeing it again in my 50s, I'm hands down, one of the, one of the best movies ever made. I can't remember. Was it Mike Nichols who made that? Mike film? Nichols, yeah, fantastic yeah. director. Uh, that's fantastic. We touched on this before, so we don't have to do very long uh, because I think you've already answered it. But uh, what is not funny? Is there anything that? Because you kind of said, you know, there are things that make you uncomfortable. But what is? Is there something particularly that makes you go, no, that's too far? Yeah. Do you know what? what I really. This is honestly. I feel this. What I think is so like the, the spirit of what's not funny, especially you see it on social media or people like people trying to do a joke and someone going, that's not funny. And, I, and, and that doesn't help. People who say that's not funny does not help because it doesn't make it funnier. It does, I've, never, I've never heard of a joke that's been made better when you say that's not funny. I sometimes do a story of how I did something that people didn't laugh and people, but no one's saying, if someone is out there to tell you that's not funny, stop doing it. I find that offensive. And that's like the least funny thing and, the, and one of my big bugbears. Maybe it's not the right answer to the, to the question, but it's a bugbear of mine when people say not funny. And I've had that quite a lot, socially and on stage, not funny, you know. It's a very English thing, but it's a yes. really, it's, and I see in other cultures, I see it in Iran, Aslan Khan, People say, I did not think that was funny at all. I just think that if you don't think something's funny, well, be polite and say nothing. Or laugh, or laugh, do some false laughter. <laughs> lie, yeah. lie and laugh. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the idea of the arrogance of going, I've decided that's not funny and so therefore it's not. I'm speaking for everyone. I just think that's yes. really wrong. It really upsets me. Yeah, no, I understand that. What sound makes you laugh? If you speak to most comedians, the sound that makes them giggle, like, you know, you know, when an audience laughs and then the, the, the comedian starts laughing, that only ever happens. And I, and I know this across, it's not just like a funny laugh. It's specifically the, the hysterical laughter of a woman, a middle-aged woman. Because well, when a middle-aged woman thinks you're funny, that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate validation for a middle-aged man when a middle-aged woman has lost it. I think that's that for me is what makes me giggle because then I know oh, she's really seen the humor of it and then I enjoy the humor again and it makes me laugh afresh. So, so my favorite laugh is the laughter of middle-aged women. Oh, 
Wonderful. Would you rather be considered clever or funny? Funny, because because to, to be funny, you have to be extremely clever. So clever is like a half. Clever is a half compliment. If someone says you're funny, if a woman says you're 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 clever, but if you've seen that song by Salt and Pepper, you're so crazy. I think I want to have your baby. You know, which means you've gone a bit further than just be clever. You're you're funny, and that's an extra. That's an extra level to it. Oh, that's brilliant. And finally, Omid, desert island gags. You can only take one joke with you to a desert island. What is it? Um, wow, there are so many jokes that I like. And I think the my favourite joke of all time was a joke that Barry Cryer told me. And I would take this to Desert Island. And he, he, if you've done I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, he goes, you're on the list now. And I said, what's that? He goes, we call each other up. If we've got a good joke, we tell each other jokes. You might get a call. So about a month later, he goes, Ahmed Baz Cryer here. He goes, you know, I like parrot jokes. I said, yeah. He goes, you know, I like Jewish jokes. I said, yeah. He goes, I've got a Jewish parrot joke. And some people have heard this, but the joke is that a Jewish man wants to buy a parrot and they goes, all these parrots are 20 quid. There's a special one. He's special because he, he tells, he, say, he can recite the Jewish prayer for the dead. He goes, rubbish, I want to see it. And they lift up the curtain and there's a parrot going, uh, uh, he goes, this is amazing because I'll take his pays a hundred pounds takes this parrot that can do the prayer for the dead and tells the whole synagogue, I've got a parrot here that can do the prayer for the dead. People say, that's rubbish. He goes, who wants a bet? Who wants a bet? Hi, me. I'll take 50 pounds. Shlomo, 50 pounds. He takes the bets from everyone, tells the parrot to do it, and the parrot doesn't do anything. He goes, do the prayer for the dead. The parrot, shtum. People start rustling and getting upset. They want their money back. He's paying all the money back, and he's completely broke, and he takes the parrot home. He goes, why didn't you do the prayer when I asked you? And the parrot says, hi, me. Think of the odds next week. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a perfect, really? it's the perfect Jewish parrot joke. Oh, it's a perfect Jewish parrot joke. And you have been the perfect state change for us and brought us <laughs> so much joys. Omid Jalidi, thank you so much for being on the Humorology Podcast. Great to be here, Paul. Thank you. The Humorology Podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes, and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider træt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.